Hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to jump right in um, because we spent some good time on baptism, which is always worth it. It's pretty fun stuff. Um, is it just me or do you guys love, I, do, I mean, I love when the Spanish-speaking congregation comes in. And then Pastor Ruben, yeah. And Pastor Ruben does that thing where he like chokes them down. Have you noticed that about Ruben? He, we tell him on the pastoral staff, dude, like, come on, they're supposed to be dead in Christ, but you don't have to like choke them out, you know? He's just a panic pastor, they got authority. Okay, Luke chapter 4, grab your Bibles, open there. If you're using a pew Bible, we're on page 1018 today. Um, we're going to cruise through this significant story in the Gospel of Luke where Luke launches Jesus onto the public stage. It's the first moment in this Gospel where Jesus is in the public eye. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke writes this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, right away, we need to know this. Last week, Pastor Matt talked about how in the section prior, Jesus was out in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by the, by the, uh, by the enemy, and how he resists temptation uh, in a way that humanity has not been able to. And then straight from this moment, out in the wilderness, Luke takes us here. We need to know this. Luke has skipped ahead in the story. This little phrase he opens with, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, actually summarizes an entire chunk of time in ministry where Jesus has been teaching and healing and performing miracles, some down in the south in the region of Judea near Jerusalem, but mostly up in the north, in this northern region um, of Israel called Galilee. Galilee was Jesus' hometown. It was, again, the northern uh, most region of the nation of Israel. It was a large region um, that Jesus would walk around about 240 towns and villages, all rural places scattered throughout this region. And Jesus has been touring around and he has been teaching in their synagogues. Now a synagogue, talked about this before, just a local place of worship um, for the Jews in Jesus' day. So many of these small towns and villages would have their own synagogue. Not all of them, but many of them would have their own little synagogue. And because in Jesus' day, there weren't a plethora of rabbis, like not every synagogue got its own rabbi. Uh, they had to rely on the te- and teachers as they would come. And so a policy emerged during this time, a practice that was called the freedom of the synagogue. And the freedom of the synagogue was simply this. If a guest rabbi came into town, someone who was qualified, someone who was suitable, someone who had stature to teach, they would always be invited to give the message, kind of like a guest preacher. So that's what Jesus has been doing these, this, for about a year and a half, actually. He's just touring around Galilee and preaching in the various synagogues. And he sort of made a name for himself doing this. The word news, we read there in verse, in verse 14, it says, news about him spread. That's the Greek word fame. And it's, it's where we get our English word fame or famous. Yeah, it literally means in Greek fame. So the fame of Jesus, Luke is telling us, is rippling out across the countryside of Galilee. Everyone praised him. The people are loving him. They cannot give enough of him. Um, he's real popular in this region. There has, there has been many, many a day, 
Many a sermon, when after he's preached, Jesus have, people have lined up to say to Jesus, great sermon, pastor, great message, thanks for coming, please, please come again. There are a lot of moments like this to pick from, a lot of high points during this year and a half for Jesus, but then Luke decides to pass over all of these moments and choose the moment that he highlights for us today. Not a high moment. Not a, not a warm reception for Jesus, as we're going to read. And the question is, why? Why, with all the fame and popularity and praise, and this is the question I want you to sort of be thinking about as we go through the story, why would Luke pick this moment, this message, this mob, to introduce us to Jesus, to launch his public ministry and his gospel? Why does he choose a moment of controversy and conflict and rejection when he had so many wonderful, great moments of fame and popularity to choose from. Well, maybe it's because Luke knows that we actually learn a lot more in the midst of struggle and conflict than we do when life is easy. Maybe it's because God knows that when controversy brews, that's when we get to know ourselves a little better, and that's when we truly get to know who the people are that we're with. And and in this passage, perhaps more than any other time up to this point, Jesus comes and he creates controversy. And as he does, who he is, why he's here, and who we need to be to follow him begins to emerge. It begins to, to crystallize and become just a bit more clear. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news, the fame that he had... Uh, acquired, spread all throughout the countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Things are going great. And now the plot thickens, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, before we get into some of the more technical parts about what Jesus communicates here, I I really want you to grasp the scene. I want you to understand the vibe as Jesus moves into this moment. You see, in first century Israel, rabbis were like rock stars. I mean, they were, they were the top of the food chain. They were the people that everyone looked up to and kids dreamt of being and becoming. And now, the kid from your hometown, the kid who grew up just down the street from you, he has emerged as one of the most talked about, popular, famous rabbis in all of Israel. And now, today, finally... On this day, his Galilean tour is going to make a stop back home. Jesus is coming to Nazareth. Word had hit the street and everyone was going to be there. The synagogue has not, had not been this full since people could remember. What would he do? What would he say? People could hardly wait. The service would have begun the way the service always began in the synagogue. The people of God would recite the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. 
Hear, O Israel, they would have said together, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then there would have been a reading from the law, from the Torah, from one of the first five books of the Old Testament. Then there would have been a reading from the prophets. Both readings would have been done in Hebrew and then they would have been translated into Aramaic, the common language of the day. This would have been followed by a teaching, a sermon. Someone would give a message and then finally the service would end with a benediction. Now on this particular Saturday, on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus is invited to perform a reading from the prophet Isaiah and then give the sermon. He's handed the scroll, he unrolls it, The people waited, wondering what passage would he choose to read. And then Jesus begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can just hear kind of the calming sigh of the crowd. Ah. Servant of the Lord, they would have said to themselves. They knew this passage well. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. These verses are from a section in Isaiah called the Servant of the Lord. And they talk about this mysterious, anointed figure from God who is predicted to come and make everything right. This is the one who God would send to set all things back the way he intended them to be. This is the one who would bring peace and justice and the kingdom of God to earth. And after Jesus finishes reading, we're told in verse 20 that he rolls up the scroll, that he gives it back to the attendant, and that he sits down. Now in the first century, in the first century synagogue, you would actually stand to read the scriptures. You would stand as a sign of respect for the holy scriptures, for the word of God. But then when you were to give the sermon, when you were going to teach, you would actually sit to teach. And you know why they did this, right? It's harder to preach a long sermon when you're standing. Which is why we've reversed that. But maybe I should get a stool today. No, I won't. So Jesus sits. He's about to give the message. And this is why in the next sentence it says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They cannot wait to hear what Jesus has to say. They've heard him read the passage. He's chosen the servant of the Lord. The passage about the Messiah. The anointed one who would come. What will Jesus say about this? And here's what they're anticipating. Here's what they think Jesus is going to say. They think he's going to talk about the day when God would send this figure, this this Messiah, and all the rights would be made wrongs would be made right and everything would be set back and Israel would reign supreme once again. They'd heard sermons like this before. Verse 21. He began, Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now he goes on from there. Luke says this is just how he began. But this for Luke, is all we need to know. There's kind of a dot, dot, dot at the end of that sentence because Jesus goes on to preach an entire message here. But for Luke, he says, this is all you need to know. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, to really fully grasp what Jesus says, what he extrapolates out and what he's trying to communicate about who he is and and what his kingdom um, is all about... Uh, We have to go back to what 
he reads. We have to go back to this section of scripture that Jesus chooses when he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. You'll remember that he's handed the scroll, he opens it, he chooses these verses, and then all of a sudden, as Jesus reads, there are two things. If you were a Jew, if you were in the audience that day, and you were listening to Jesus read the scriptures from the scroll, there are two things that would have stuck out to you, that have just sort of punched you in the nose, that would have actually surprised you, and you might have even turned to your neighbor and said, did he get that right? Did he just say, did he just do what I think he did? These two things um, are as follows. First of all, you would have noticed if you were in the room that day, that Jesus doesn't finish. He doesn't finish the reading. He does something here that the people never did. He cuts off the passage right in the middle, right in the middle of the paragraph, right in the middle of a sentence. He just ends it. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he ends. But everyone in the room, they all know the passage. They all know the verse. They know there's more to it than that. They know what the next line is. And now they're waiting for Jesus to say it, but he never does. Do you know what the next line is in Isaiah 61? The line that Jesus purposefully and intentionally and very noticeably leaves out that day? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see what Jesus does? Do you see what he, he sort of offers them? Do you see what he, he, he leaves out the vengeance part? Jesus leaves out the vengeance part. And in no subtle way, Jesus is saying this. The kingdom that I come to announce today, the kingdom that I offer, the kingdom that is here now in me is not about the vengeance of God. It's about the radical love and grace and mercy of God. You see, the primary message that Jesus comes to offer, the message he brings, the message he predominantly preaches is not one of vengeance. It's one of radical love and grace. And I guess the question for us today, friends, is this. Is that true of us? When we preach the message of Christ, do the people that hear our message, do they hear a message of love and grace and mercy and radical acceptance from God, or do they hear vengeance? Maybe maybe a more important question is, what do they see in our lives? Do they see in our lives love and grace and mercy, or do they see judgment and vengeance, and we've got to even the score. It's so easy, isn't it, for vengeance just to sort of slide in? Does anyone here enjoy vengeance as much as me? I'm just, I'll just be honest today. I mean, I, the more I, I become like Christ, the less I enjoy it, but I find I still have this sinful nature, this sinful part of me that... It shows up every now and then, uh, most of the time, every week this, these, this, these days, um, at my kids' softball and baseball games. That's when vengeance will rear its ugly head in my life. The other night, we're at a softball game, my 10-year-old daughter is pitching, and you know, there's nothing that'll get you going like your daughter pitching. And the umpire, you know, this, this young guy who's probably getting paid like two fifty an hour to call balls and strikes, he's not getting the strikes right. He does not, he's not calling the right strike zone. 
Does he know this is 10-year-old girls softball? The playoffs are on the line, buddy. And I'm, but I'm keeping my cool. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just deep breath, deep breath. Spirit of God right here. It's just an umpire. It's not a problem. And then, you know, there's this one scene where all of a sudden, like, the, the pitch count was getting pretty tight. I think it was a full count. It was getting pretty close. And the batter, my daughter throws a nice fastball right down the middle. It's a solid pitch. And the, the girl fouls it off, and it goes straight up in the air. And it actually hits the netting, like the little backstop netting. And it ricochets off the netting and comes flying out. And Skyler goes, and she tries to catch it. And she kind of reaches out, and it tips off the end of her glove. But because she touched it, the umpire does not call it a foul ball. And the girl runs to the first base and the umpire says that she's safe. But the ball's dead. Once it hits the backstop, it's a dead ball. And so Tom Stevens <laughs> comes and I come running out of the dugout like we're going to give it to this umpire. I, I am sick and tired. It is time for him to pay the piper here, right? Vengeance is mine, says the coaches. Right? And it's one of those moments where later I look back and I think, really, Dave? Do you ever have these moments? Really, Dave? Yeah, whatever, Tom. You led the way. Hey, just do like the elders here, church. Now, do you ever have these moments that later on I'm thinking to myself, really, Dave? Really? I mean, you're going to be preaching tomorrow. And you couldn't give that umpire just a little bit of slack vengeance it just feels so good but jesus comes and he says in my kingdom when you follow me when you receive what i have to offer it's not about the vengeance he just leaves the vengeance out and, and this and this was not a normal thing because the jews of jesus day they love to talk about the vengeance they love to talk about how god would come and someday get even with all the people who had made them poor and who had oppressed them, who had made them prisoners in their own land. You see, vengeance for them, it was part of the good news because it wasn't going to be vengeance on them. It was going to be vengeance for them. But Jesus says, no, that's not how we're going to do this thing. Not in my kingdom. So first off, Jesus leaves off the vengeance. Second, the second things they would have noticed about what Jesus has to say here is that he ends his reading with a statement that references one of the greatest events in the history of the nation of of Israel, this event that's called the Year of Jubilee, or the Year of the Lord's Favor. favor. And here's what this was. Back, way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 5, the Jews were instructed that every 50 years there was to be a jubilee year. And a jubilee year was a year where all slaves would be freed. Every 50 years, just Wipe it out. All slaves are freed. All debts canceled. All property property returned to its original owner. Now, this was a system implemented by God to sort of make sure that no one person or no one family or no one section of, section of the people started to dominate the wealth of the society. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in society, sometimes this happens. The rich just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting poorer. And as time goes on, the gap just starts to widen. And God builds a system right in here to just sort of Level the playing field. Every 50 years, things just kind of get moved back to the starting line. And if you were a poor person, if you had, if you had lost it all, if, if you had through a series maybe of bad choices become massively indebted or even enslaved, the year, the year of Jubilee was meant to be this, this radical fresh start for you. In other words... Jubilee was about, you know, if you've messed your life up, you now get a redo. You get a do-over. You get a mulligan. 
on your one and only life, even though you've completely blown it, we're going to start it all over again. That's the year of Jubilee. But you know what's interesting? In all the years the nation of Israel had been in existence, in all the years they had, had been a people following God, hundreds and hundreds of years, how many times, every 50 years, your Jubilee, how many times do you think they actually celebrated, did they actually implement the year of Jubilee? Zero. Nada. Not even once did they actually do it. Because, because that, that kind of grace, that kind of radical, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of a fresh start, it is not easy to offer. It's not free. You see, because it's great news for you if you're the one whose debts are being canceled, if you're enslaved and now you're set free, but someone has to pay for those debts. Someone's having to give up the land that they've acquired. And people, I don't know if you've noticed this about people, but people do not like to give up what they, at least in their mind, believe that they have earned for themselves. And so never, not even once, do they implement a year of jubilee. But then Jesus comes and he says, you want to know who I am? You, know what, you want to know what my kingdom's about? I'm not a kingdom of vengeance where scores are settled and people must pay for what they've done. Mine is a kingdom of grace where slaves are freed and debts are canceled and people who have messed up their lives big time get offered a fresh start. And guess who will take on all the debt and all the cost? I will. That's his message. That's his sermon. I'm the Messiah, not of vengeance. I'm the Messiah who comes to offer a kingdom of radical jubilee-type grace to all humanity. And then listen to their response. So he preaches this sermon. He stands up and says, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. This is what my kingdom looks like. And what do you think their response is? Now, sometimes in this story, people get confused and they have this idea that this is the moment when the crowd turns on him. That can't be true. You're just Jesus from Nazareth. Get out of here. You think you're the Messiah, buddy? Now, how arrogant are you? No way. Not how it goes down. At this point of the story, after Jesus preaches this message, here's the response. This is what Luke tells us, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now why, why is this message sitting so warmly in their hearts? Why do they like it? Why, do, why are they enjoying the message at this point? I'll tell you why. They think Jesus is talking about them. They think they're the recipients. They hear the words poor, prisoners, oppressed, and they think, yeah, yeah, right on, Jesus, that's us. Preach it, brother. You know? Nazareth is not like living in the suburbs, friends. This was a, a, a poor rural town where people did everything they could every single day just to get by. And they were not only poor, in the midst of their poverty, they were being ruled and controlled and taxed beyond belief by a foreign power that time and time and time again had stripped them of their dignity and stripped them of their identity. You want to come to Nazareth and talk about people who were poor and oppressed, impre- oppressed and imprisoned? Be my guest. These people could relate. You were preaching to the choir. Yeah, Jesus, that's right. Your kingdom is for people just like us. Great. 
loving those gracious words that are rolling off your lips. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't, next, next, next phrase, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And this is the moment of the story where things start to turn for the crowd. They, they start, they ask this question, isn't this Joseph's son? And I, and I, all week I've been wrestling, and, and I'm still not quite convinced one way or the other. I can't, you ever have those moments when you read the Bible, and all you really want is some inflection? I want to know, what was the inflection of this comment? What was the tone of voice here? And as many times as I read it, the Bible just won't give me inflection. And so sometimes, I have to guess, sometimes I just don't know. In this instance, I think it's an inflection of doubt, or it's an inflection of greed. This is a, a doubt statement or a greed statement. I do not know which one it was. If it was a doubt statement, it would go something like this. Man, that's a great claim. Jesus anointed one Messiah. That's huge. That's awesome. But isn't this just Joseph's son? To which Luke answers. What's Luke's answer to that question? Isn't this just Joseph's son? No. Yes, we're here for the beginning of the story, right? Whose son is he? He's God's son. Isn't this just, but isn't this just Joseph's son? It looks kind of in the background going, no, it ain't. This is the son of God, people. Okay, so that's the doubt kind of question. Or maybe it's a question out of greed. Maybe there's this moment where they're like, man, these gracious words, this is awesome. The Messiah is here. He's going to bring the kingdom and he's offering it to people like us. And furthermore, we just hit the lottery because you know what? He's one of our guys. That's Joseph's kid. Like, how did we get so lucky? We're the hometown of the Messiah. That's pretty rad, right? Have you ever seen, like, celebrities, like, and then you drive into their hometown, they have big signs out, like, you know, so-and-so, Michael Jordan raised here, you know, home of blah, 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 blah. These people are proud. We got Jesus. That's kind of the trump card, you know. I don't care who you got. We got Jesus. He's from our town. Take that. And they're thinking, man, we just won, we just won the, you know, the sweepstakes. He's one of ours. So it's either doubt or it's either greed. Either, in either sense, Jesus starts to, to hone in on their hearts. He starts to see what they're thinking. He reads their minds. And here's what he says to them. Surely you will quote, quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you've heard, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. You see, they've heard all the reports. Again, Jesus has been out doing these things for months. They've heard the, about the miracles. They've heard about the healings. They've heard about the, the wonders from God. And now they're saying, Jesus, all right, great, good sermon and all, but let's see it. Let's see how this thing plays out. And then here's Jesus' response. And they're still very happy with him here. They're not angry yet. No anger, no frustration. They're still receiving him. They're still kind of considering going up to him after the message and saying, good sermon. Um, And then Jesus says this in verse 24. Truly I tell you, and that's kind of the listen up, right? Truly I tell you, listen up, because here's where we're going to get serious. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that, you were, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian." 
Now, Jesus does a few things in this, this closing section that kind of shift the popularity polls for him in Nazareth. First of all, he brings up a, a, a period of time that the Israelites were not particularly fond of. This time of Elijah and Elisha, it was a time when the nation of Israel had turned on God. They had walked away from God. They were actually worshiping false gods. They were worshiping the Baals. They were not practicing morality or justice in any way. God has to rebuke them sternly. And so they're here with Jesus and they're thinking, yeah, poor, oppressed, imprisoned, captive. Yeah, that's us, Jesus. You're here for us. Yeah, we're the people of the kingdom. We're with you. And then Jesus says, you guys think you're the people of the kingdom? You guys think you have the hearts of the kingdom? Let's go back to the time of Elijah and Elisha. And it's like he kind of like rubs their face in it. He takes their sin, their worst sin, and he says, you guys think you're entitled? You think you're deserving of the kingdom of God? Let's take a closer look at who you really are. You know, no one really likes it when... I mean, I don't know, maybe you do, but I don't always really enjoy it when someone shows me my sin and kind of pushes it in my face. But the point here, the point that Jesus is making, it's so significant this morning, friends. Do not miss this. To receive Jesus, to enter into his kingdom, is to accept our own fallenness and brokenness on a deep and difficult level. You see, to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, you have to be aware of your own fallenness and brokenness on a deep, deep level. It means you have to come face to face quite often with things that are really hard to face about who you truly are. You guys, you kind of remind me of the people of God, Jesus says, back during the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then he goes and takes it a step further. He says, the two people who do kind of receive the kingdom, who receive the grace of God in this moment, are actually not the Israelites. It's actually not you folks. It's these two foreigners. And he, and he references this widow and this general. One of them is a very rich person. One of them is a very a poor person. But they were both very far from God. The widow of Zarephath, she was a Gentile. She was an idol worshiper. She was a heretic. She was poor. She was a woman. All things that would have been strikes against her. She is on the outside, friends, of respectability. She's on the other side of the line. She is certainly outside of all the religious and moral standards that the people of God had held up during that time. And then he shifts over to Naaman. He says, if you think the widow was bad, let's talk about Naaman. Naaman was an enemy. He was an enemy general. This man was a murderer. He was a killer. He put other people into slavery. He was an idol worshiper. worshiper. He was immoral. These two people are absolute spiritual outcasts. This would be sort of like walking into Great Britain or into France during World War II and talking about the love and grace of God for Adolf Hitler. Like, let's just, let's just pray for Hitler as a nation right now. Do you think that would have gone over real well? That's how these people felt. You are talking about our enemies. And you're here, Jesus, in your hometown to tell us that the kingdom is not for us, but it's for them? Now you know why they drug him outside of town and tried to throw him off a cliff, right? That's what they do at the end of the story. They didn't particularly like the Gentiles. That's what drove them to fury. Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. That's That's what N.T. Wright says. That's what drove them to fury. 
Israel's God is rescuing the wrong people. What about us? And what Luke does here is right off the bat, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, is he draws a contrast between the radical grace of Jesus' kingdom and the entitlement of the people of Nazareth. You see, what Luke tells us is the grace of God and entitlement are like oil and water. Entitlement and grace can never mix. Entitlement is not a part of God's kingdom whatsoever. Grace and grace alone. If you believe, if you think you are deserving, that you have earned, that you are entitled to what God offers in any way, you have missed it. Entitlement is such an ugly thing. Have you ever experienced entitlement? You ever feel entitlement? Entitlement's like expectation. You ever have an expectation that's not met? You're expecting something and it doesn't happen? You're expecting to get something and you don't get it? You're expecting to experience something and you don't experience it? You're expecting to get out of here at 12.15 and the preacher goes along? You're expecting and it doesn't happen. And you're bummed, you're disappointed, maybe you're a little frustrated. But you know what? Entitlement is like expectation on steroids. You don't just hope for it. You just don't want it. You believe you deserve it. And if it doesn't happen and if you don't get it, there is a rage that can grow inside of you that is almost unexplainable. The first time I ever remember watching entitlement play out, I was a third grader. It was the end of our little third grade soccer season. It's funny how sports are kind of the common theme in my life. Maybe I should just stay away from them. But... I'm a third grader. I was playing on this little soccer team. It was the end of the season. We had our end-of-the-year team party at Godfather's Pizza. A buddy of mine's dad was the coach, and we had a good team that year. We won the championship. And there was a kid on our team who had scored all the goals on our team. He played forward all year. He was a really good athlete. He was a buddy of mine. And like, he was just a really, really good player. We also had another kid on the team who, who was a, a really good defensive player who always played center fullback and had kind of been like an iron wall and kept the other team from scoring. And we got to the end of the sort of team party, and the coach stood up and started handing out awards. And it came time for him to hand out like the player of the year on our team. And uh, so he gets up, and everyone expected him to give it to the kid who scored all the goals, including the kid who scored all the goals. But instead, he gave it to the defensive guy. And that kid, who, who, who was the forward who scored all the goals, who thought that he was going to get, and thought that he deserved, and felt entitled to getting player of the year, I watched him have a meltdown in the middle of Godfather's Pizza like I have never seen before. It was crazy. It's one of those memories, you know like when you're a kid and you have all these memories that just kind of float, it's one of those that's like burned on my brain. And I especially remember it because after we left that night, my dad like grabbed me. And he was like, if I ever see you do that, like, and I was like, dad, it was, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. And he was like, but yeah, but you were there. Like, you will never act. And it was like, oh, it scared me. Like, dad was just fired up about it because it was pretty bad. But it's entitlement, friends. Entitlement says, if I don't get what I think I deserve, then guess what? I am furious and I'll do whatever I have to do. And that's why these people march Jesus out of the city and they're ready to throw him off a cliff because he's telling them that they aren't entitled to the kingdom that they believe they deserve, that they've earned because they are the people of God. Friends, this morning, we have a chance to remember that we are a lot like this widow and a lot like this general named Nahum. People who didn't deserve the kingdom. People who in no way thought 
that they were entitled to the kingdom. People who thought that God giving them even a second glance was a long shot and who poured themselves out and said, God, only by your grace and only by your mercy might I experience you in my life. And that's what God responds to. He doesn't respond to entitlement. He responds to people who understand how poor and enslaved and blind and captured they really are. That's the declaration we make as Christians. We come together and we say, all of us are here. All of us, every single one of us in this room. Not by our own merit. Not because we're entitled. Not because we're in any way better than anyone else. Only because we have received the love and grace of God. And we, we, one thing we were told to do, God says, just do this. Every time you gather, just remember that and proclaim that truth. And we do that in the Lord's Supper. We take these elements, this, this bread, the body that was broken, this, this juice, this blood that was shed, as a way of saying, it had nothing to do with me. I am entitled to this in no way whatsoever. Only by the grace of God. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom we're a part of. That's the kingdom Jesus came to proclaim. That's the kingdom that is scandalous. Not because of vengeance, but because of grace that is radically inclusive to any and everyone who will receive it. The ushers are going to come forward and distribute the elements. Just think for a minute this morning as they do. Remember with me how unentitled we are how it's all about God's grace, how it's all on his back. It is nothing that we've done. It is everything that he did. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for your challenge, for your controversy, for the way that you reject our attempts to earn your love and say, you can never do it. You never could. It's all for free. It's all on me. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.